On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus prays to his Father, I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them from the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Nate Gazau, and you're listening to Aliens on Earth. Thank you for joining us. We've got a very special episode lined up just for you. Stick around. If you're just now joining us and haven't gotten a chance to listen to episode one, I want you to stop right now. Give it a listen and come back. We're going to be picking up where we left off and I don't want you to be like, "Mm, what? I thought we were talking about aliens, bro. Well, sort of, but... This will be the final episode of our introduction. So this is part two to the introduction. And let's recap a little bit before we move on. In episode one, we talked about the fall of man and the separation of man from God caused by disobedience to God's word. God in his mercy cuts off Adam and Eve from the tree of life so they won't live forever in enmity with God. Doubt, pride, the false sense that we could be the gods of our own lives crept in and tainted the relationship we have with our creator. Sin made mankind lose sight of our identity. Can you imagine something that you created turning around and telling you it had a plan of its own? Disregards the purpose for which you made it? Even worse, almost thinks that they could be equal or it could be equal with you? How can we then be reunited with God? How can we fix this? How do we walk in his fellowship once again? Which leads us right up to our discussion for today. Let's look at God's redemptive plan for mankind. Starting with Noah, we'll see God's plan leading all the way up to Christ. So in the midst of the chaos, God found a man who was righteous. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Scripture tells us there was a person still choosing to walk with God and keep his word. Noah is not really joining into the sin-crazed ways of the people around him. God finds him and says, oh, I found a man that I can trust. God still had made up his mind that he was gonna destroy the earth and every living thing on it. I want us to pause a second, just Think about this. At a time where people are living between 500 and 900 years old, God is really putting up with their foolishness for this long. 500 to 900 years old. Each person's lifespan is 9x of what we live. Just put it, put yourself in God's shoes for a second. Let's say you are babysitting some really bad kids that don't listen, they're super disrespectful. They don't do what you ask. They do the opposite. They laugh about it. They're breaking stuff. They're just cursing and doing all kinds of crazy things. After about an hour or so, you're probably ready to sell them on Facebook Marketplace or something. But in in all seriousness, 900 years per person, nonstop sinning. God is truly patient. God starts giving no instructions. He says, build me an ark that's 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits tall. It's going to have three levels. Imagine three football fields in length. Noah was instructed to get two of every kind of animal, a male and female, and bring them on this ark. So Noah builds this ark that God commanded him to do. And he puts all the animals on. All his family members goes on board this ark. 
and God, true to his word, brings the flood and destroys every living thing. After this all settles in, God makes a covenant with Noah. In his covenant, he promises he would not destroy the earth by flood again. He puts a signal of his promise in the sky, a rainbow. God says to Noah that this is my signal of promise. God was fed up with creation, with mankind, because of sin, the constant desire to do evil all the time. So he hits the reset button, wipes everyone out, except Noah and his family. Let's fast forward a little bit now and see if this changes everything. Great redemption, right? The great purging and everything is clean, everything is good. Noah was righteous, his family's righteous. There's two of every animal on the earth, they're populating, things are good. It's back to normal. Well, here's where things get interesting. Let's dive into this. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language, a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and make them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, will be scattered all over the earth. Now, let's wait a second here. This is kind of giving me Genesis 1 vibes. So God redoes everything. And now all of a sudden people are getting together. They're able to plan and, and strategize and build something. This is the part that's interesting. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we'll be scattered. It sounds a little pride-ish to me or a little bit more like we want to be powerful. We want to be invincible. Take God out of the equation again. They basically would be their own God, right? We saw how well that worked in the garden. Let's see what God thinks of their little idea. Verse five, God came down to the city, the tower and the people that were building it. He looks and says, as if one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Then nothing they do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language and scattered them. God stops their progress. I know, I mean, you're probably thinking, okay, God's being a little bit unreasonable here. Why would he stop them from building this city? What's the big deal? It's just a city, right? Imagine you're at work, you're in a big meeting, the CEO's there, the execs are there, and you're on the verge of like solving world hunger, or you found the formula to living forever. And all of a sudden, you guys just can't understand each other anymore. It's strange, right? But let's read between the lines. God is not stopping mankind from something that's good, but he's keeping them from once again, building themselves up to thinking that they're untouchable thinking that they could be their own God. And if they got to that point, they would still remain in a broken state at enmity with God and be naive to the whole situation. Same reason why God didn't allow Adam and Eve to continue eating from the tree of life after they fell into sin. You see, God can't be associated with sin. He told Adam the wages of sin was death, but God out of his mercy didn't allow them to continue that way forever. So he sends them away. Temporary death is better than eternal enmity with God, which is, you know, hell by definition, really, the absence of God. And this is what these people were trying to achieve and didn't even know it. They would have built that tower, prided themselves. Look at us. Look what we can do. Look at us. Look at us now. We're all we need. We're our own gods. Does that remind you of anyone or is this correlating somehow? <laughs> I mean, 
Come on. Now people are scattered. They have many different languages, many tribes. We meet Abraham from the line of Shem, which is one of the three sons of Noah. God calls Abraham to leave his father's land and go to a land that God had promised for him. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, telling him he will father a great nation. This is interesting because God says to Abraham, his offspring will be as the stars in the sky. So God being true to his word, out of Abraham a nation was born. And through his grandson Jacob, which God named Israel his own chosen people, we fast forward and see God raising up leaders, other human beings, to be his representative on earth to lead his people. So we see Moses, he gives the people the law, the 10 commandments, the 613 commandments that follow that. And in order for the people of God to be in right standing, they would have to follow these commands. When they didn't, God asked his people to perform offerings as a way of atonement as a way of being cleansed. There's five offerings that were customary for them to make in that time. And two out of those five were mandatory offerings. So the first one was a burnt offering. This is a voluntary offering that was an act of worship and devotion to God. Also an atonement for an unintentional sin. The second one was a grain offering. And this offering was a sign of gratitude for the good fortune that God had bestowed on the individual or the family a sign of thanking God for his favor. The third offering is a peace offering. This offering emphasized fellowship and was also shared with a meal afterwards. Fourth offering was a mandatory offering. This was the sin offering, which atoned for sin against God or man and cleansed them of defilement. The fifth offering was also mandatory, which was a trespass offering. And this granted them atonement for sin against someone else and an unintentional sin against someone. And this was often followed by a repayment of some sort. They had to offer animal sacrifices for all these things. Imagine how many sheep, bulls, rams, goats had to be sacrificed. And it's mind boggling, honestly. And imagine being poor and committing a sin, not being able to sacrifice an animal. And if you were lucky to find two turtle doves or young pigeons, they would be your substitute if you were less fortunate and couldn't afford an animal. One would be a sin offering, the other a burnt offering. For the poorest of the poor individuals, there would be a tenth of an ephah of unscented flour that could be offered instead. What if you didn't have that and just couldn't afford it? You're stuck with your sin until you're able to make the sacrifice? How many times a day does somebody sin? Or how many times in a year? Is it even calculable is it is it fathomable just imagine that in the garden god gives us the first example of blood sacrifice once adam and eve fell into sin their eyes were open they realized they were naked. god had to slaughter an animal use the hide of the animal to clothe them and cover them cover their sin ever since then god you know requires a, a sacrifice for sin the result of sin is death and we humans will face death because of this sin but not only death in our bodies, but an eternal spiritual separation from God. God called the people of Israel to be his chosen people, that if they obey his law, they would be right with him and be saved. And when they sinned, they had to kill an animal to perform the payment for their sin. God knew that there was only one way that he could restore this broken relationship forever. And that's through his son, Jesus. God foretold of his coming through Moses, Daniel, prophet Isaiah, King David, and more. If you've been able to study God's word in depth, you'd know that Christ is all over the Old Testament. God's redemptive plan began with Abraham, known as the founding father of our faith. 
and his descendants, the chosen people of God, known as Israel. But God didn't just choose Israel to be exclusive. He chose them to be an example for other nations and to lead other nations to himself. The Israelites failed time and time again, miserably, falling astray by worshiping idols, adapting to the ways of their pagan neighbors, you know, disobeying God's law. They looked to their neighbors and saw that they were ruled by kings. And, you know, they asked, they begged and pleaded that they too would have an earthly king. And, you know, God was leading them directly. God didn't really want that for them, but he allowed them to be led by a king. And that's where we get King Saul was the first king of Israel. We see outliers as well, beacons of hope that you know choose the ways of god that were adopted and brought into the family of god like rahab a canaanite prostitute that aided the escape of god's people and was essentially saved and joined the people of god we see ruth a moabite widow that chose the god of her mother-in-law naomi and abandoned her people really abandoned their way of life to follow god god's heart has always been for all of humanity to worship him in spirit and in truth this plan begins to unfold god after generations of dwelling on mount tops and temples using the priests as mediators for the people decides it's time to tear the veil and dwell within man for a direct relationship through his son jesus christ's lineage is described in matthew chapter 1 he's a descendant of david who comes from the tribe of judah one of the 12 sons of jacob also known as israel whose father was abraham jesus was born to the virgin mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary was betrothed to be married to a carpenter named Joseph. God strategically plans this, that his son would be born this way, born to the ancestry of a prostitute and a Moabite who were both redeemed by God. He came down to earth to really relate with the broken and the lowly. He became flesh and was fully God and fully man. He was tempted in every way, just like us but never sinned. He didn't come into the world through a royal family that boasted riches and power. He was not the son of some Pharisee or wealthy statesman. God's intention on sending his son was not to appeal to the elites to dominate the earth and take it over, take over the government at the time, which was the Roman Empire. God sent Jesus to once and for all pay the price for our sin and die as a blameless sacrifice. This is why he's called the Lamb of God. Christ Jesus came not only to save us, but to show us a new way of life that's free from the grip of sin. He was introducing God's kingdom to earth through Christ. You know, we saw from the beginning how Adam and Eve sinned and were sent out from the garden. And then even God uses Noah. After that, we see sin creeping up again and we see them trying to build that tower of Babel and God had to destroy it again and again. We see this thing creep up and get in the way of us fellowshipping with God. The countless amounts of animals that had been sacrificed. But God decides once and for all, I'll send my son as the ultimate sacrifice, the purest sacrifice. This is his plan for humanity all along, but by faith in Christ that we would be saved. Jesus, before beginning his ministry, gets baptized by John. And afterwards, God establishes his son's identity for all to hear. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Behold, a voice of, out of heaven said, 
This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. God puts his seal of approval on him. Remember when he made Adam and called him very good? Pay attention to this. Now, immediately after this happens, Jesus goes into the wilderness to get tempted and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's look at it. Chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter said to him, If you are the Son of God, now pause right there. We all just heard what God had said in chapter 3. We know he's the Son of God. He announced it in front of everyone to hear. And now Satan's challenging him by causing doubt, saying, if you are the son of God, listen to how he's attacking him in this moment. He says, command these stones to become bread. So he's attacking him at his moment of hunger and seeing if he'll act outside of the father's direction and will to feed himself. So the, the, he's testing Jesus. Oh, let's see if he's prideful enough to use his position to feed himself. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Christ is tempted here, but he clings to the word of God. He clings to what he knows to be true about himself. And that is that he is the son of God and that he is found pleasing in the sight of his father. So whatever that little, if you are the son of God, comment doesn't mean anything because he knows that he's the son of God. He's been told that by the father. It's like, oof, I just got goosebumps reading that. But think about it. The enemy is so relentless. And where Eve began doubting, Christ stood firm on his father's word. But it doesn't end there. So then the devil takes him to a holy city and had him stand at the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written now since jesus told him man lives off of every word of god now satan starts coming at him with scripture <laughs> daring him pretty much to jump off and see if his father saves him listen to this he says he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone jesus replies back to him on the other hand it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test so in other words I will not test God and I won't test my father. I trust him. So Satan is pretty crafty, but he's also kind of relentless here. He has, he's still not done. He comes for the grand finale. He tries to offer him what Adam and Eve gave up in the beginning. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So Satan wanted to be God so bad. That's what got him thrown out of heaven. Then he tricked Adam and Eve out of the land that they were to rule and reign over. But Jesus reigns victorious. He, he stands firm on the word and never loses sight of his identity as God's son and as the father had delighted in him. It's amazing to see God's son, Jesus, goes through this test and he passes this test. He goes through this identity check. Obviously, this the one that Adam and Eve failed at. God passes and says, no, 
the word of God is true. I stand on on the word. I stand on my father's words. So fast forward three years after Christ's early ministry on earth, Christ gets crucified on a cross and he dies for the sin of mankind. He is our sinless blameless offering our lamb that was slain three days later jesus raises from the dead destroying the power of sin and death once and for all and he's now at the right hand of the father and mediating on our behalf because he saw and faced everything we ever have and overcame we too can be children of god by accepting christ as our lord and savior and by turning from our own desires to be god the desires that have left led us away from god resulting in separation from him, being dominated by sin and our fallen nature. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and for my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. I'll end on this note. How many of us can honestly say we know the word of God? And I don't mean just John 3.16 and the other catchy verses, all the pro athletes post on their instagrams or the pop stars use when they're winning an award at the award shows but being honest like how many of us can say that we actually go to scripture regularly for our life choices or we go to scripture when we need advice on something or we genuinely just fill ourselves with the word of god to live our daily lives to survive and just like our bodies need healthy food to stay alive and remain nourished, our spirit man needs the word of God to remain well. Let me make a bold statement. You can never love God or live for him detached from his word. If Christ being perfect clung to the words of God, how much more do we then need his word to survive? God cannot be separated from his word. Quite frankly, if our Christianity isn't centered on his word, then it's really idolatry. You know, your your parents' faith, your cousin's faith, or your pastor's faith can't save you. Your pastor's relationship with God won't sustain your Christian life. It's imperative that we ourselves cultivate and develop a relationship with God and really use his word as the bedrock, as the foundation by which we do everything. And I want to give you one last example. Let's look in Acts chapter 19 from, from verse 11. Um, this is after Jesus had already ascended into heaven and the disciples were doing great miracles and spreading the word of God. But I want us to really see one point. In verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva, they were doing this. But listen to this. This is very important. Verse 15. 
But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered them all and took power over them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and the fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was exalted. And as many as those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted their value and found them about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Guys, this is so important for us to know that calling on the name of the Lord whom other people know doesn't help us in our daily life struggles. We have to have our own personal relationship with God. The devil is not fooled by someone who just goes through the motions but has no real connection and relationship to God and his word. So the act of showing up to church on Sunday the act of listening to some Christian songs every now and then isn't going to cut it. When life issues and circumstances come, when we are walking this thing called life, the devil is real. He's always speaking and moving and working, whether it's through media outlets or friends or whomever. In order for us to be victorious, we must be seasoned in our faith, have a real solid, firm foundation and relationship with God. I want to invite you in this moment to search your heart and accept Christ into your heart if you haven't done so. Maybe you already have before and you've walked away from your faith. I want you to say with me and really believe it right now. Jesus, I'm yours. Be my Lord. Have your way with me. I want to invite you on this journey to embrace our true identity as sons, as daughters of God, as citizens of heaven and walk as aliens on earth. This is not your home.